Hi, I'm Daryl Etherington. Welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we tell you the stories behind the startups. I'm joined as always by my co-host and the cutter ant to my regular plain old boring black ant. Jordan Crook, cutter ant here. That's right. Farmer. Doing jobs. Very task oriented. Taking the leaves, put them over into the other part and then grabbing the leaves later and moving them up a spiral. I learned a lot. In today's episode, I would say. Yeah. Well, good for you. I just told you what I learned. That was it. That was the sum of it. <laughs> I actually know quite a bit, but before we get to that, I want to tell our listeners about something very exciting happening, which is TechCrunch Disrupt. Yeah. Whoa! And the crowd goes wild. I thought you were going to do something like that, Jordan. You made a face that maybe you're going to do that, but you didn't. So I didn't even know what we were promoing. But now that in. I know, I'm amped. Yeah, we're very amped. We put a lot of love into this, obviously, but we get even more love out of it, I'd say. And that's the most exciting part. So we want to see you there. You can get tickets to Disrupt still. And we have a special promo code. And the promo code is, wait for it, found. That's right. It's the name of the show. And that'll get you 15% off passes. So that's excluding the online only and expo type passes. But every other pass, you'll get a 15% discount if you use promo code FOUND. So please go do that on TechCrunch. Find the Disrupt page and then find the ticket sales there and use that code. But let's get to today's show. We're talking to Scott Gravel from Atabotics, a fellow Canadian, as we get to right away because I can't help myself. Mm -hmm. And... He built this. I still don't really <laughs> understand. I don't fully get it. Why it's vertical, how, but it's a, robots with bins. Yes, something like that. It's like a it's like a self contained sort of like you can drop it into any warehouse system. It's a three dimensional pack and pick robot system that essentially there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. It reminded me of like puzzles that are too good for me that I'm not smart enough to figure out. Uh. But Scott is much better at explaining it than I am, since I can't explain it, but Scott can. So let's go ahead and get to Scott. Hi, Scott. How's it going? I am great, Daryl. How are you, sir? Great, great. This is a very exciting episode for me. Jordan, do you know why? No. Well, Scott's Canadian. Oh, ding, ding, ding. You couldn't tell? Already? I couldn't tell. I, I felt that Scott was really, really nice, but that <laughs> normally isn't like enough, you know, like as a single criterion. <laughs> a single data point. I'm I'm sorry I didn't there give you we go. to, to work <laughs> there off There of. we go. Yeah. You're sorry about yeah. really, that. I'm really, I'm really, really sorry. I actually, I don't do the about or a thing. Um, that's more Eastern Canada. But right. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother is all over it. So. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So you're out in Calgary and you've got a terrific startup that we'd love to hear more about and our listeners would probably love to learn what it is that Adabotics does in case they haven't heard of it previously. Being a startup, I think we're still slightly figuring it out <laughs> as Good to answer. what we are and what we do. I could tell you what we started out wanting to do and how that's morphed. Yeah, sure. Actually. So proud to say we've never made a big pivot. We've just bitten off a bigger piece of the problem as we start to understand more and more about it. We started out to build the fulfillment engine that modern commerce needed. Mm. That's the way we looked at it. You know, traditional legacy hardware software wasn't supporting modern consumer behavior. And you can only run a sortation conveyor so fast. Right. So we built an each item fulfillment engine that has really high solution density. I'll dive into that a little more. It's not just about picking something. It's about picking the 2.8 items you've ordered, getting them in the right place, into the right box, onto the right carrier in the shortest amount of time, using the least amount of labor in the smallest amount of space. Hmm. So when I talk about solution, it's not just cool robots, which we have. We have some really <laughs> badass cool robots. It's the way we think about using them. So as it's evolved, you know, we started out as a technology company, creating a hardware platform. But we've done an incredible amount of work in software and intelligence to actually start bringing more and more value to solve more and more of those problems. So, like I said, proud to say we haven't done a pivot. We just keep biting off more and more of the problem because we actually think we have, we have solutions to them. Right. Yeah. So I, I know a little bit about this only because I have some experience picking like from no, you don't. a long, long time ago. Yes, I do. Lies. Jordan, why do you, do, why do you think that Canadians aren't supposed to lie. <laughs> I just never no, heard you, you say it in 12 years. So I'm just wondering I, what Well, this story one doesn't we, come we, up. We, we've all had 
Jordan, we've all had some crappy jobs. No, That's no, right. it's not yeah. about crappy jobs. I know about his <laughs> crappy jobs. I, there's just nothing I don't know about him. So now I'm like, Meh. I just I don't think you know about this one because I didn't. I never <laughs> brought it up that much because it wasn't that exciting. But I worked at a place called Monarch Office Supply, which is in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. <laughs> but it was. Uh, they were a supplier, kind of like Staples is, if you know people are familiar with the larger brand. But they would supply local businesses with like office supplies, right? And I was like a store worker, and that would partly involve working front of house, like helping customers, but it would partly involve picking back of house in the warehouse and loading orders for customers. So it was a very inefficient process there at that time, especially when and you were doing <laughs> it. At what age? Uh, <laughs> I want to picture you. I think I was in university, probably like. 19 or something That's like what that. That's going to be my guess. So, so Jordan, just think less beard and narrower chin. I don't That's think right. he's That's ever right. had less beard. I imagine uh, yeah. he was born that way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I'm not going to touch that one. Um, <laughs> but it was not, it, this was like well before the era, the, tr- the real era of, e- of e-commerce, right? So I can imagine that must have exponentially. Yeah, changed just the like, game. People were just like, we cannot, we cannot work this way. I'll argue with you a little bit. Mm. It was the birth of right. e-commerce. That's and true. just because you didn't order through the internet, the problem was the same. It was single item picking. It was designed to be convenient for the customer base. And it was, every order was a little different, but I'm sure every single one of them had photocopy paper in them. Yeah. So if you look at the history of kind of the automation of e-commerce, office supplies were always some of the first. And... Because that was the customer base that demanded each item bespoke picking for themselves. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to come walk the aisles. And if you look at the history of where automation started to fit in, like Office Depot was one of the first companies yeah. to start implementing automation. I think they were one of the earliest Kiva customers. Yeah. And then the problem grew when we all had access to the internet now and not just a checklist form, which right. you would ma- mail in or fax, probably fax in. Yeah, yeah. Now it's everyone has access to the same kind of level of service. Give me exactly what I'm asking for in single item quantities in a variety of mixtures in a variety of timing. And no longer can we do it by someone just at a high school summer student just in the back room anymore. Right. Yeah. So that's the problem. And it's interesting that you were right at the precipice of the change. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't give enough credit to that moment in my life. <laughs> Clearly not. I mean, don't I mean, give too much yeah. credit to that moment either, or you as a, as a part of it. Right. Yeah. yeah I don't really get did arrogant. I, I he changed. changed the game over there in Ontario. <laughs> no, because I made no observations that I'm led just saying to you were the, you were there is what I'm saying. <laughs> you, you were there. Or witness to the change. Yes. But exactly. Scott, like how did you come to want to solve this problem? Like, what about your... I know you had a longboards business. Does that factor into it at all? Like, how um, did you get to this point where you were like, this is what I want to do? On paper, I'm probably the most unqualified person on the planet for my job. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. My background is diverse, and it's it's certainly unique. Education in nursing, sometimes a medic in the Canadian Armed Forces, journeyman cabinet maker. Oh, okay. He used to design houses, design kitchens. The skateboard thing came up because I was interested in it. I was doing a bunch of dryland training because at the time I was on the Canadian national hang gliding team hmm. and wanted to do, I know it's weird, I <laughs> uh, wanted to do some stuff that was still exciting but would help you know with my overall fitness. And I bought a board and two days later it broke and I thought I could build something better. So I started building boards just for myself. And when the, the mortgage crisis, you know, the credit crisis hit the U.S., it had reverberations up here in Canada and everything slowed down in the mm-hmm. new home industry. So I took that as an opportunity or a signal to go start my own business. So I started building skateboards. Now, you don't build skateboards in an oil and gas town right? without automation. <laughs> we don't have access to some of the labor base that exists in like Southern California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was always good at being a doctor do little of computer controlled machinery, making it do things that... People were amazed by, but it was just computers and understanding how manufacturing works. So that helped me a lot in actually developing a skill set around computer-controlled automation. When I shuttered that business after five years, because although we did become the fifth largest longboard skateboard manufacturer in the world, wow, that's like saying that we were a tadpole in a puddle. <laughs> right. So you know, it was a struggle for a number of years. I did some cool stuff, but it wasn't there wasn't a big future in it. Shuttered the company and I started then consulting to companies implementing digital manufacturing technologies 
into their workflow. So I worked in bottling and plastics and wood manufacturing in Western Canada, just doing consulting. And it wasn't just setting up a machine anymore. It's like teaching them how to use it, how to think about using it, how to change their workflows, how to change their front end processes. So I was writing database applications and doing a bunch of parametric modeling stuff and creating a way for each machine to access data about that specific part. So networked intelligence in the shop. And, and this was very, very different for plastics and wood manufacturing. Then I actually needed to create a buffer at the end of a manufacturing line because the batch size was bigger than the reach of the robot that I was going to use to store it. So I could either put the robot on a rail to create more capacity, mm-hmm. but it would have slowed down the throughput of the solution. Or once I had a full shelf of parts, move it and put an empty shelf in its place. So I started designing something that looked like that, that puzzle game we had as kids that had one missing tile and you had to slide it around. To, right, yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Very, very high density. But in my research, I found that there was already a company that had robots that move shelves. So I called them. And I'd still like to find the receptionist from Kiva Systems at that time. Because she said, thank you, but we're no longer accepting inquiries and hung up on me. And I was like, oh, who the hell doesn't want my money? So quick Google search. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, Amazon just bought you for $775 million. I understand right. why you don't want to sell one robot to me. <laughs> but then that sent me down a rabbit hole. And it's kind of like the robotics seemed simple compared to some of the machines I've been working on. Hmm. You know, a Kiva or a robot or an AMR robot has three motors, you know, and certainly some intelligence and ability to locate itself and navigate. I was working on machines with 75 integrated motors. And so I thought, okay, interesting. And then I started looking at the whole market, trying to figure out what was good about all the technologies that were coming out. Amazon just validated that having a robot bring you stuff was probably a good idea. Right. So who else is making robots that bring stuff? And I understood why you wanted to have the robot bring you stuff. So I looked at all of the companies out there and all the technology out there. In the same lens, I used to look at recommending manufacturing equipment to customers based off of kind of their needs. What are the upsides, downsides? What kind of machine rates would you get? Like very kind of nerdy. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that everything, with little exception, but everything was an automated version of our world, a human-centric okay. world. And when you're putting robots into manufacturing, you want to create a world that's just great for the robot. Yeah. Because robots and people working together still aren't that efficient and still can be kind of dangerous. It's either low efficiency or high danger. Yes. <laughs> so creating an environment ideal for a robot was key, not automating a human-centric kind mm-hmm. of world. And then I had no ideas. And then I started watching nature documentaries because I figured nature probably had the problem figured out. And the aha moment happened when I ran across a little YouTube video about a researcher pouring molten aluminum down a leafcutter ant colony in the jungle. And he was just trying to figure out what the internal structure was. There's lots of people doing this now for art, doing like fire ants in Texas. Right. But leafcutter ants are a little more specific because they're farmers. They store things and they grow things. So when I saw that they used vertical shaft to access all of their little grow rooms and spiraled those grow rooms in a vertical shaft, it was like, okay, what happens if you access stuff vertically versus like us, horizontally from yeah. the floor? So I ripped up a bunch of business cards Played with some geometry, found a geometry that was vertically accessed instead of horizontally accessed, started doing some math, realized that we were conservatively 12% of the, the floor space required from a Kiva system. Whoa, yeah. About 6% of the floor space required from manual kind of system of just people picking stuff off the floor. You remember those old pictures of Amazon warehouses, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, okay, I got an interesting geometry. And how would you interact with it? Then what would the workflow be? How would you move around in this geometry? And I kind of figured that out. Then I went and spent two years looking for reasons not to do it. Because <laughs> it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> you know, selling $2,500 to $5,000 with, a, you know, longboard skateboards to a shop that, you know, mom and dad financed for some 25-year-old is a very different experience than trying to right. sell multi-million dollar installations to Fortune, you know, 100 companies. So I spent two years, I guess you will say, validating the opportunity when in actuality right. I was like, please find a real reason <laughs> not to do this. Yeah, yeah. So investigating the IP, you know, will it work? You know, mechatronics controls, manufacturing capability, uh, understanding more about e-commerce, the challenges that were existing in in the warehouse, the challenges, how customer expectations were growing and changing, the limitations of all the other equipment. And now there was always a reason not to do it. And that's what I I was was afraid. Mm -hmm. 
I just wouldn't let that be the reason. You know, I figured I'll find a real reason that I don't have to and worry about my, my own sen- yeah. sense of self. You know, I don't have to say I chickened out. Never found the damn reason. And now I'm talking to you. <laughs> so is it like one of those garages that stores your cars vertically and like pulls them out and takes them down? I'm I'm like trying to picture this in An my analog head. Or, yeah. Well, we talked to uh, Irving from... Bowery. I imagine the vertical farming shares some characteristics too. But. I've actually I've visited those guys a few years, like a year before COVID. Huh. How are their robots? Um, Tell us the truth. Are they as cool as yours? <laughs> don't lie. They don't You're need Canadian. to be as cool. They don't need to be as cool. Canadians lie. We're just more polite about it. <laughs> their system is more about pure density and the science mm. behind growing in an urban environment. Their robots move trays around in the system, but they don't need their robots to move three different trays to one location in 45 seconds. Right. right. It's a di- different different idea. So the way I can describe our system is, if you think of a piece of graph paper, pick one square. Okay. There's four squares around that one square that touch it on all flat sides. Right. So if the one square in the center is as a void space, you could pull any one of the four squares around it into that void space. So stack those up on top of each other. And now we have a robot that can go to a vertical column that could be 10 meters tall. Uh, I'll translate, 32 foot six um, Thanks. tall. Man, you're... I, I'm, I'm helpful, I know. <laughs> That's I know. the word I was looking for. I'm for bi- sure. bilingual, uh-huh. bilingual, yes. <laughs> the robot will descend down that column. And in a, a system of that height, there'll be 96 total positions, 24 on each side of the column. One of them will be empty. Because the robot's going to come in with the bin it had before. And that bin's sitting on the top of the robot. Think about an ant carrying a leaf. It's it's mm-hmm. on top. So I got a square robot that looks like it confused a lawnmower without a handle on it. And it's got a bin on its head. And it comes in and it goes down to the position of that empty shelf. And it puts that one bin away. Now, every space in that column now is full. But it came there for a specific bin. Now, it'll climb up or descend depending on what its target bin is. And then it'll go pull the bin from whatever side of the column onto the top of it. And it'll descend out the bottom. And we've created, we call it the basement, but it's a grid sorter underneath all that storage volume. And we have another grid on top of it. So when it comes out the bottom now, it has the ability to drive out to the perimeter, anywhere on the perimeter, and present that bin to whatever process needs to be done. Are you Hmm. going to fill that bin up? Are you taking something out of that bin? Are you going to consolidate it? Are you going to count the inventory in it? We don't care. But we have the ability for any robot to go grab any bin from any location, deliver it to any location in any sequence. So that core functionality means that we have a great deal of high solution density because it's in the same square footage of the storage because that sortation layer happens underneath. Once you're done with the bin or some process is done with the bin, the robot then climbs up the outside of the structure, goes back up to the top, and will drive you know, on the grid to the column that contains its next bin. And it'll repeat that cycle. It'll go down, mm. put its current bin away in the one empty slot, go grab the bin it needs, exit, and go do it all over again. So it takes the robots about a minute to go get something, present it, go put it away, get something else. So in this three-dimensional cube... You know, it's kind of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with all the weird elevators everywhere. (laughs) But it's just robots driving around in three dimensions, pulling bins out and delivering them to the perimeter. And on the perimeter, we can have people, we can have other robots, other technologies, but we don't need sortation conveyors. Mm -hmm. We don't need put walls. We don't need to pre-optimize every move in some big pre-orchestrated batch so if you have a rush order, I can go get it. 45 seconds later, the bin will be out and I won't disturb the efficiency of the rest of the solution. Wow. Whereas legacy solutions, you kind of had to pre-orchestrate right. you know, what was going to happen for the next hour and a half. And then you couldn't do anything until that batch was done. And that doesn't support the way consumer trends are going. So we wanted to create an engine that is non-dynamic, combined sortation, sequencing, buffering, storage, and retrieval with a great deal of intelligence so you can put it in a small space and get high high throughput out of it without the traditional limitations of committing to automation. And what I mean by committing is the second you bolt a conveyor to the floor, you're committed yeah. to what that thing's going to do. It, hopefully that helps you imagine it. It's a big, when you look at it, it's a big white box that makes noises because you can't see what's going on, <laughs> on the inside. But it sounds like the other comparison that comes to mind is kind of like, well, this is like a negative comparison because this did not work at all. But like Elon's sort of desire to build these dense car manufacturing automated facilities. But his was very highly structured and very highly permanent. Like 
I've, I saw them, the ones that didn't work, like at, when I visit mm-hmm. the factory. And you would look at it and you go, okay, I get it. Like he wants everything to happen in there and it to be sort of like minimal intervention by people. So there is, it's designed to have no infringement by people, but it just, it was not well architected. So it did not, the output it's was a really, like, It's a really big problem. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. You've yeah. got to, you got to think that human beings are pattern matching machines. We're puzzle solvers. We're not math. We're not calculators. And a computer is a calculator. So I'm not asking my robots to pick up a little sewing kit at a five-gallon jug of conditioner or an avocado. Right. I ask my robots to go get a bin. Get the bin. Yeah. And that's (laughs) all they do is they just get bins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they can deliver that bin in any location, which means now I can probably create a robot that's really good at picking up little sewing kits. Or let's think about the grocery industry. I can make a robot that's really good at picking up cans, and then I can deliver the order tote, you know, what, what your grocery order is, to the robot that's really good at picking up boxes. Mm-hmm. And then I can deliver it to the robot that's really good at picking up bags. And then I'll deliver it to the person that's really good at picking ripe avocados. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rather than trying to create an automation system that does everything, because we can't, let's create an automa- automation system that's really, really good at doing a very narrow kind of thing. Yeah. And then combine those systems. In a and then combine them in an intelligent way. Yeah. And so I admire a lot what Elon was trying to do, but it's a complex problem when you think about all the different panels of a car. Yeah. My robots move bins. They're the same size bins. They move them the same way every time. So the better analogy to what we do is to look back at the history of the greatest improvements of supply chain efficiency. We've got three of them. There's more, but let's think about Indiana Jones movies. Mm-hmm. You know, something was put in a handmade wooden crate on a train in a boxcar, maybe on a single axle truck to the port, you know, loaded into the cargo hold of a ship by a net and a crane, delivered to a warehouse, put on a cart, stacked on top of another crate. We still don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's still in that warehouse. We don't know. That was supply chain. Yeah. Now, what's changed? If you think about forklifts, they only work if you have pallets Mm -hmm. and pallet racking. So it was cranes before that, but now a forklift and a pallet and pallet racking means that you have a standardized interface for automation, which is the pallet. Doesn't matter what you stack on that pallet, the forklift can pick it up and move it, right? And it can load into a truck, but you have that standardized interface. Now, if you think about, you know, I'm a little bit older than both of you. No. So you might not remember people putting individual price tags on cans of beans in the grocery store. Yeah, we talked about that. Oh, yes. Didn't we, we just about talk about that? The, yes. Yeah, the yeah. sticker gun. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I remember. Exactly. So it used to be, and then someone would ring in the price by hand, right? Cashier, and it was Kmart that pushed all of their brands to start putting UPC codes or barcodes on their products. Walmart. Kmart. They, oh, Kmart. They, well, Kmart did it first. Ooh. They forced they forced them to do it. But if you think about it, it's not just a barcode printed on a label anymore. It's a barcode scanner. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of infrastructure around if it. If you look back in the day, it used to be a, a PC with a big power supply wheeling up and down the aisles, you know, on a cart. And and then it was the scanning at checkout. So that once again, an entire ecosystem around a standardized interface for automation, which was the barcode. But it, it didn't exist by itself without all of these other supporting technologies. And then... My favorite one is shipping containers. So that was the U.S. Department of Defense during the Vietnam War. But it wasn't just a container anymore. For multimodal transport means you needed trucks, trains, cranes, ports, ships. There was a massive investment in an entire ecosystem to move around a standardized interface for automation, which is the container. That opened up global commerce turned Asia into the manufacturing hub for the world, like it changed everything. So there's a new problem now, and that is that consumers need a want, demand, huge selection, low prices, same day or next day. So how do you create an ecosystem now for a diverse, you know, millions of different SKUs in an ecosystem that you can actually pre-deploy inventory in a market and be able to access an inventory to lower the transportation costs, lower the service time, and in doing that, you actually lower the carbon footprint of modern commerce dramatically because it's not on a plane or on a long-haul truck anymore. You need a standardized interface for automation. Mm-hmm. But now it needs to be at a scale that fits the problem. So I wouldn't say our robots are the biggest kind of innovation for us. It's how we think about a bin. Mm-hmm. What should go in the bin? Where should that bin be? How best to move that bin? How to present that bin? Get the stuff that you've just ordered to you 
as quickly and as cost effectively as possible. And we really taken a great deal of inspiration from what worked historically, create standardized interfaces for automation. Our robots don't need to pick up sewing kits and avocados. They just need to move bins and do so incredibly efficiently. And then you just need to do the business logic, which I, I say just need to, but is an immense challenge in itself, right? To make sure those bins have the right combination of things at the right time. Yeah, and that's an evolution. Right. That is absolutely an evolution. And we have been working really, really, really hard on software. People think we're a robotics company. We're really supply chain intelligence business. It's just our robotics and the capability that the system has allowed us now to combine those functionalities Mm -hmm. mean that we can keep delivering more and more value just out of intelligence. So let's go back to that Tesla example. Yep. Great platform. Give it an update every couple of weeks. It does new things and it does them better. And as we gather data and we learn more and more and more, we can start applying that intelligence to the platform. So, you know, I hate to, I hate to do this because it sounds so kind of cliche. <laughs> <laughs> Our platform allows us to use, of course, robotics, but also IoT. Mm-hmm. We have Canada's first private cellular network installed in our shop. Right. So, and, and then Edge Compute. And of course, all this information needs to go into the cloud. As a cloud and those big data, we can apply a great deal of ML and AI to pick out data trends mm-hmm. and for predictive analytics, both from a maintenance point of view and from a pre-deploying inventory. Moving inventory, what's the smartest way? And as we start to aggregate all this data together, of course, you need to protect the transactions in this. So the dirtiest word of them all, at some point, blockchain's going to be involved or some kind of trusted ledger system. Right. As we start tracking the movement of a variety of different people's goods in a variety of different ways. So we found that we're an applied platform to start bringing value to all of this stuff people have been dreaming about for a long time. So on the intelligence side, I've got a big team. The biggest part of my team is making this smarter every day. Of course, we, you know, from a hardware point of view, we're a young company. It takes a while to make hardware really stable. But what our competitors did in 20 years, we've done in six. So really proud of the accomplishments we've made there. And, and as the hardware now becomes fully stable, and the best example I can give about that is look at a real old picture of a car from the like, teens or the 20s, and it carried four spare tires with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you buy a car now, you don't even get a spare tire. No, I know. You know? And so it's just the, evo- <laughs> the evolution of technology that creates robustness. And that takes a little bit of time, but we're leaning in incredibly hard on the partnerships we need, um, the connectivity we need, the intelligence we need, and driving now value through the delivery of intelligence to the platform. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, I don't mean to do your recruiting for you, but it sounds like a tremendously fun problem to solve if that's the way your brain works, right? Like if you're like, oh, now I have this thing, like your system is the unlock, the hardware and the way that the sort of warehouse in a box thing works, mm-hmm. right? Is like, that's a great unlock. And then it's like, now go problem solve, do the engineering part that you'd like as a software engineer to like design the logic for that. Yeah. And you know, my, my job now, like I designed the first couple of robots and spent too much time alone by myself with a laptop in the early years. But now I just surround myself with some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Mm. And I just try to give them a direction and allow them to figure out how to guess from where we are to where we need to be. And that's really exciting for me is my goal in, in building this wasn't to build robots. It was to build a business I always wished I could have worked at. Yeah, and a yeah. big part of that is allowing really intelligent people the autonomy to go solve problems and the ownership around how they solve them. And that's really exciting to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a growth opportunity for me as an ex-control freak. Um, are you really a former control freak or are you... Or a current... Or, yeah, current and potentially recovering. If you if you ask some of the people close to me, I'm a very different person than I was a few years ago. Oh, that's good. Oh, wow. Okay. But it's all a journey. It's all relative, mm. too. Yeah, like I think I've got, I think I've got the charismatic startup founder thing kind of nailed. <laughs> you know, race hang gliders, build skateboards, and I'm able to, like like great story, cool story. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. now my challenge is how to how to how to become a really good CEO. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I don't want to be the reason the company doesn't achieve its full potential. Right, and you hear those stories all the time. So how do you actually do that? In practice, yeah. What do you actually like do? What, therapy, what are the steps? medication, <laughs> meditation. Um. Hmm. I guess the same way I learned how to, you know, write mechatronics code. I go find the best sources I can mm. for that and figure out what's the best way to apply it to who I am and what I know. So what are your sources? I've 
Tell us, please. Like, we're, <laughs> we're trying really to get the actual first answers, sir. We're terrible leaders. <laughs> I think. I think the first one. We're recovering yeah, terrible well, leaders. I think the the first first thing you have to address is insecurity. Yeah, Daryl. Mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I haven't fully addressed that. I'm a work in progress. Not thinking you always had to have the answer. Mm. I used to be paranoid that if I didn't have the answer, I wasn't doing my job. And I can't right. have all the answers. It's impossible if I have all the answers. Encourage people to find answers, but you don't have to have it. And so there's this, this kind of transition I've been going through, which is a, a bit of a leap of faith that I might not have the answer, but it's out there. And I've got confidence in myself, my team mm-hmm. that will find the answer. Being comfortable with, I don't know. Yeah, or I'm not sure. Or mm-hmm. let, me, let me find mm-hmm. out versus having to have the answer. So a big part of that, I think, is insecurity. Most of what I read about great leaders is they're either really curious or they're developmentally damaged narcissists. And <laughs> I would rather be on the curious side. <laughs> Given those choices, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> if those pick, are the pick, options pick some, for sure. Pick someone that's trying to prove they just deserve to exist and invest in them and your investment will go very well. Right. If we look at some of you know the history of the greatest leaders in tech, they all have a common backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. They all have a story of early childhood neglect. Right. And that's unfortunate. And it gives them this incredible drive, though. This incredible drive. I don't want that to be the reason I'm trying to put a dent in the world. Mm-hmm. It's just to prove I deserve to exist. You know, I'm worthy. I have an opportunity, and part, don't get me wrong, there's, there's, there's enough childhood trauma in there to, to me have a big slice of that, but I want it to be more than that. Right. And to be a good leader, I don't know what the full answer is. All I know is I'm curious to find out, and every day I'm trying to figure out the difference between charismatic startup founder and, and good executive like CEO. Mm-hmm. And I've got my own style. I'm not trying to emulate any one person. I'm certainly not going to be the guy in the suit and the tie every day, although I do make that look good. It's just not who I am. (laughs) Leadership now is less about telling people what they need to do and more about encouraging them to be curious to go figure that out for themselves. So I guess a follow-up question to that, and this is something I think about a lot at TechCrunch, is like, how do you solicit feedback? Because that curiosity, you have amazing data points in the people who work with you. Right? Like right. they can tell you how they I They can help satisfy your curiosity. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like they can tell you how XYZ makes them feel or motivates them or demotivates them, et cetera. So how do you go about soliciting that feedback? It's really hard now. We're just now rediscovering what it's like to work in the same building together. Mm-hmm. And that's still not happening all the time. Like we're having this conversation right now and and, and, and you're this big to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm only, I'm only getting about 30% of the information that I'd get from either of you if you were, we were in the same room. Feedback, you can try to kind of structure it and quantify it, but a big part of it is how people engage with you. How safe do they feel? How safe can you make them feel? You know, can you create a, a corporate environment that's safe for feedback? Can you solicit it? My favorite thing to do is to sit down, lean against whatever they're working on and shoot the shit and ask them how they got to where they're going. What I see as my value anymore is I don't need to figure out what's the right hertz to run the IMU at and the robot to get better data out of it. I don't need to. I need to make sure that they understand why what they're working on is important to the big picture. Right. And make sure they feel a sense of ownership on how they're contributing to the big picture. And that's hard now. Yeah. It's hard because I don't get to spend the time that I used to. It's, it's, it's re-evolving, but navigating through COVID and now coming out into a culture that is very much more remote than it ever was before is something I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. yeah. My old ways was always talking to people, like individually. Yeah. Like, tell me what you're working on. You hit on it for us, I think, too. We have a big, we've always been remote, right? But we, that is a specific and recurring problem that is very difficult to address in a remote culture is like making sure, especially people who are new and coming on and we have occasional in-person check-ins and they kind of help us to solidify that, but that's around events. But it's really hard on an mm-hmm. ongoing basis to make sure people feel like you are contributing directly in a really meaningful way. And this is why, and this is like, I mean, it's partly like you just forget because like what are you, there are 
list of names in your sidebar in Slack or something, right? Right. Yeah. They don't feel as real. But also I think like it's interesting the idea of talking to someone and kind of trying to read them. I feel like for me, I've always been very averse to structured feedback, but I've changed my tune a lot in the last 12 months. And I think a big part of that was I noticed <laughs> I noticed a big change in my last promotion and the tone and the way that people were talking to me. I could just tell that it wasn't always quite as genuine. They they wanted me to feel good about what they were saying to me. Right. They, you know, like they and it's the not like a fault of yeah, yeah. It's not a fault of anyone's, but I just felt that there was a slice of authenticity that had gone away and relying on my ability to read people was going to be maybe a little bit too a little arrogant, right? Because they're trying to trick me sometimes. <laughs> not in a bad way, but they kind of are trying to trick me. So you I've changed my tune on that a little bit, but finding the balance between the two has been difficult. Yeah, I, I depend on the team around me to help implement the tools. I know as the CEO, my job is, you know, vision and culture mm -hmm. and then communication. Yeah. Like I'm a storyteller. Yeah. I used to build robots and now I talk to people about building robots. Yeah. Now, whether I'm talking to the staff, a customer, the market, the press, the investors, it's, I'm a storyteller. And trying to be a good storyteller, but I think the secret to being a good storyteller is authenticity. We all have pretty sensitive bullshit meters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many stories about startup CEOs just spewing fake it till you make it crap. Right, totally. So being real and honest and transparent, I think from my point of view, is super important. When I talk about how to connect with people and, and, and motivate people, I like to draw a line for them from what they're doing directly to our North Star mm -hmm. and show how what they're doing contributes to the North Star. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you discover that someone's working on something that doesn't contribute to the North Star. Then you go talk to their manager and ask them why we're putting resources into this right now, um, <laughs> which can make for uncomfortable conversations. But it's my job and I'm learning trying to learn how to keep people focused on what's really important. But what's really important isn't necessarily the goals of the business. What's really important is the goals of the people in the business. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Are we aligned around the same goals? What's what's their goal? Sometimes their goal is just to make a paycheck to feed their kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes their goal is to expand their career. Sometimes their goal is to work on something exciting. Like we work in an oil and gas town and early on it was easy to find people whose goal was not to work in oil and gas. Right. Yeah. Anything other than oil and gas was a great, a great thing. But now it's it's growing. We we have to make sure the business is good for the people working in it. And that's been hard through COVID. Yeah. That's yeah. now been hard as we're looking at kind of the, the, the macroeconomic, you know, market around tech and the threats of war and, and keeping people motivated because we're trying to do what's right for them mm -hmm. is increasingly challenging. And as you know, you can't make everybody happy all the time. No. Yeah. People are really complicated. We've been talking about this a lot. And people are businesses, mm -hmm. ultimately. Like, they're made up of people. Yeah. As many robots yep. as yeah. you want to build, you're still going to need some people. So, like, I... Well, I, if, if, I, if I get this right... Um, uh, no. <laughs> come have your robot run TechCrunch. Shh, don't say it. <laughs> we, around, no, around, the office, around the office, we have the joke that the goal is robots building robots to take over the world. Oh, um, <laughs> which everyone seems excited about. They're mostly, they're mostly engineers, so it's super exciting. But no, in, yeah. the spirit, in the spirit of storytelling and you yourself being a person and transparency, with our waning moments, I was wondering if I could ask you about your peak and your pit on your founder journey. What this has been week? not Today? since being a founder. This is like a <laughs> oh. the highest high, the lowest low. I'm just gonna throw a bunch at you because there's not one more important sure. than the other. Getting the first two hundred fifty thousand dollars to start the business. Someone saying yes. Right? Way. Someone believing enough in the idea. The first time it worked. Mm. Laughing with the team the first time it worked. Um, moving into a new office, installing our first system. I spent nights riveting with a great group of people, like on the tools. Mm -hmm. Attracting really strong players around me has been incredibly validating for me. Who wants to join me on this journey? Who believes enough in this vision and me to come join me? Those have been great moments. Lowest low, getting stabbed in the back by the people I started the business with because mm. they would have rather gotten their money out than seen the company move forward. 
Wow. That feels wow. like a story That's we should have touched on. <laughs> it's, it's, it's three or four chapters in the book I'm going to write. Um, okay. Money f***s people up. Yeah. And I, don't, yeah. And I can say that another way if you need to edit that nope. up. But the saddest part of that is how people sacrificed their own character and sense of what was right and wrong out of fear. Fear of not being important enough. Fear of not getting their money out. And it was done at the expense of, of everyone else that was still working in the business. And mm-hmm. I'm really, really proud to say when you talk about highest highs is uh, not succumbing to that. Right. A couple of years ago, there, there was a hostile takeover attempt that aligned a bunch of my early shareholders and my co-founders wow. around exiting, exiting the business to a big multinational. We didn't exit the business to a big multinational. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really proud of how hard me and the internal team fought to make sure the business could stay benefiting the people that have been working on it for so long. Because I wasn't going to let any of my employees or anybody that joined me on this journey get screwed. And that was the hardest part, was realizing that not everyone is coming on this journey and not everybody should. Yeah. And keeping focused on on the opportunity we have and making sure the people that are here trying every day will benefit from it. I mean, that must have been incredibly hard, even that, because it would be such a massive, painful distraction and probably at a crucial, I mean, it's always a crucial time when you're a startup, but I mean, it, to make sure that everything else is still going while trying to handle that. Oh, in all transparency and honesty, the second I knew the company was safe, I completely crashed, lost 20 pounds in two weeks. Wow. Um, adrenal failure, cortisol screwed up, spent a bunch of time with my doctor and my therapist just to not fall apart. I had fallen apart. No one knew about it for about yeah. two and a half weeks. And so yeah, what you I, kept the external appearances up. Um, yeah, I let the people around me handle things so I could focus on, on that. That was the most stressful time of my life. So when mm-hmm. I said, if you ask people around me how I'm different now than I was two years ago, there are lots of reasons, mm-hmm. lots yeah, of reasons. Sounds like and, but when you have the opportunity, when you get broken down that far, you don't have to rebuild the same crappy old house. You can fix the foundation, reframe it, put in new plumbing, new electrical, bring everything up to code and, and make a better foundation for who you are. And I was fortunate that I got that opportunity and I never would have gotten that opportunity if I hadn't been busted down so much. So it was a great place to look at not only myself, it's who I want to be, who I want to become, you know, how I'm going to get there, who I want to surround myself with, why am I doing what I'm doing and getting great clarity on that. And I'm really, really proud to say that, you know, the company is growing. The opportunity continues to be validated. We've got a great team working towards the future and the people that didn't want to be part of that future aren't really much of an influence in my life anymore, which, which is great. Yeah, that's good news. And, you know, we're glad you made it through it. And thanks for sharing that too. I think probably a lot of listeners who are founders will recognize similar moments or, you know, it will value that going into the future and they'll probably run up against things like that. I and guarantee that. they have or they will. Yeah. It's not an easy job. And it's, they always say it's a lonely job. People think being a startup CEO is great and it's got its perks. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not complaining about my life one little bit, but I know how challenging it can be when everyone's looking to you for an answer and yeah. you're yourself are constantly looking for guidance and answers. So encourage wow. everyone to reach out to whatever support they have. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be an island, uh, even yeah. though it feels like you, you have to be. Daryl, yeah, you can but, always yeah. reach out to me. Well, you know I do, Jordan. You're the only person I do probably. But <laughs> right back at you, buddy. You're carrying the weight of Jordan's world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scott, we're about out of time, but again, thanks so much. It was really great having you on and great chat with you. Yeah. I mean, I wish the biomimicry extended to your leadership because I think the queen leaf cutter ant, I don't think she has to do much at all. No, I think she's just down there. She's got a really crappy job. She gets force, force fed <laughs> and constantly bit to lay eggs. It's the last oh, job. Okay. Well, I'd never mind. That want. sounds terrible. It's the last job I'd ever want. <laughs> Yuck. Uh, all right well thanks again great great talking to you scott take care everybody all right jordan that was our conversation with scott so i like learning about nature and i also did my best to follow his explanation i think i get it conceptually there's i'm trying to build a model in my brain 
but it is definitely not the type of thinking that I usually do. I'm a words person. You know me. Yeah. We both are. We tend to do. We, we work like the words. languages. Yeah. But very cool that he came up with this and has built a business on it. Uh, what did you think of our conversation, Jaren? I thought it was good. I mean, he told us a lot about his robot, which wasn't that interesting to me. But the history of supply chain automation interfaces was pretty interesting. Yes. I thought some of his commentary on leadership and like kind of facing and accepting your insecurity was good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it was really a surprise to us. And I mean, that's why it happens late stage. We didn't bring it up earlier to talk about it, but talking about the challenges of facing essentially a hostile takeover attempt of your company is huge and something I think we mentioned, but will resonate Unfortunately, with a lot of people probably listening, because there does come that point where the rubber hits the road and basically some of your investors are going to be like, look, we got an offer on the table. It's a liquidity event for us. And maybe some of your co-founders want to go that route, too. And if you really, really don't want to, that is quite the crisis point to reach. It is. And I feel like he talked about this a little bit. But, you know, my mom always said, like, you can't control the behavior of other people. You can only control your own behavior. Yeah. And I think that's both like... I've lived my whole life trying to prove that wrong, Jordan. <laughs> and I promise you I will. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, you are you are a little dictator, aren't you? But <laughs> I think that like you hope as a founder that you are proactive enough in that thinking and also introspective enough early on to kind of, you can't always foresee everything. People are going to be malicious. People are going to have their own agenda. You can't be responsible or hold guilt or blame for that. You can only kind of like look at yourself and determine, am I making choices and am I understanding the people around me well enough to kind of get my way in this? Right. I wish we could have delved into that story a little deeper, but maybe we'll talk to him some other time, maybe not on found, but maybe we'll write a story on what happened there or something like that. But yeah. it was interesting, that's for sure. And it came out of the blue at the end, which is unfortunate. Yeah, no, it was good. I, I mean, unfortunate from one angle, but fortunate from another, because at least... I don't really look at up, things from the optimistic The positive angle. one? Yeah, no, no, that makes it's sense. It's always unfortunate. Yeah. Even good things. Because he also brought up authenticity, and I thought that was like, that was a moment of displayed authenticity, right? Like, it's not something you probably are coached to talk about necessarily from a PR firm, for instance, right? But the authenticity conversation is always interesting to me because, I mean, we've been dealing with this too, and everybody does to some extent, is how do you balance authenticity with like what is like necessary for For a persona that you have to use in well, yeah, business, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Because not everyone can know everything. Like if I were as vulnerable as I, if I was 100% vulnerable at work with you or anyone else, you guys would be like, what the f-? I don't need to know well, that. Well, who's running you know? this Yeah. Or yeah. Like, like what? Yeah. But then there's a piece of it that's also really important. And that is interesting. I think that he said, like, I just try to talk to people to get feedback on how I'm doing. You know, I think I, I generally, I think I disagree with that as a methodology that's super sound because I think. I could tell in the, you know, your line of questioning that you did not see that that was the right path. Well, I think there's like a level of, I think that I'm a very good judge of character. I think I can read people pretty well. And I still don't want to trick myself into thinking that when I have a conversation with one of my direct reports. You've sussed out everything. Yeah, that they're right. telling me the honest truth about my faults. So I hope to give other methods through which I can learn that information because I can't fix what I don't know to fix. Yeah. My preferred method is whisper network, personally. But. Yeah, I like when it <laughs> I like when it trickles through the back channels all the way to above me and then comes down like a yeah. hammer. That's the best. I'm vibe. like, what's his name in Game of Thrones? You know, the guy with the Chaos is a ladder. Your little, little children. Yeah. Oh. I don't know about what? Are we talking about the same Oh, you're like oh, the, the, unit. the evil maester? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Varys. Yeah. You're Varys. Yeah, oh, yeah Varys. Oh, yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, we're off topic. <laughs> Overall, I don't philosophically agree with everything that he said, but I thought he was an interesting founder to have on the show. And he had a lot of things to say that kind of surprised me or were interesting. And he is a good storyteller. I'll give him that. So Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the best facets or at least most enjoyable things for me personally doing the show is that I definitely don't agree with everybody we have on. So totally 
cool to have different perspectives and people <laughs> whose sterile. methods you don't necessarily agree with, right? But yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's super cool. One thing I wanted to ask him about and didn't get the chance to because we got into yeah, the it's other that stuff part of the episode was just how this could do grocery. I, grocery is like a thing they list. And, you know, it is one of the things that I think is ripest for this kind of change because I use Instacart all the time. And Instacart is sending a human being to shop in your stead to a grocery store designed for human being shopping. Like, it yeah. makes very little sense when you think about it on the surface of it, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you have a significant number of people. And that shopper isn't normally as good as you want them to be, I feel like. Don't, don't, right. don't, not that they're not good. Not they just don't share the same standards or everyone it, has it's like a very particular thing. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. But you can imagine how, like, if you built a, a grocery store that was actually, you know, built a series of these boxes that he's made that has bins and with the different stuff and then, like, integrated into pickers he mentioned avocados and you know you need a human to tell a ripe avocado but you could see a system where it's like wow this is great this is exactly fit for purpose what i want and your groceries get there immediately and they fit your specifications right to t mm-hmm. over time as the system learns so that's something cool i think that could come out of something like this and there's a lot of like existing software around food waste and grocery stores and demand forecasting and stuff like that that like could make that a lot easier. Right. There's a lot of inputs already to to help Yeah, there's a lot of data floating around there. So, Well, we'll go do that, I guess. And this is our last episode of Found because we're quitting TechCrunch and becoming grocery grocery robots. Entrepreneurs. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. That's not true. Uh, We'll be back next week. And please go leave reviews to just say how much you appreciate us that we're sticking around. Mm -hmm. Express your love. Basically. We took it away and then we gave it back. Yeah. And thank you. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Cal Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pekovic. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.